I've got you under my skin. I've got you deep in the heart of me. So deep. Hello there. My name is Tom Chick, and you are listening to the Quarter to Three Games podcast for early to mid June. As I said, I'm Tom Chick, and my game of the week is not XCOM Enemy Within. Hi, I'm Tony Carnavali, and my game of the week is not Sid Meier's Starships. Was that ever your game of the week, though, Tony? It was never my game of the week, but never less so than this week, because this week I returned it via Steam's new refund policy. For a refund, even though I purchased it well more than two weeks ago. Tell me you didn't play it for more than two hours, though. That's important. Uh, Steam says that I played it for two hours, but I think it might be rounding down. I I probably played it for slightly more than two hours. So sounds like barely under the wire there. Um, but even then, so yeah, and you, you took advantage of it. This is a game you didn't like. I kind of did like it, by the way. You, you, you kinda, I know. You, you sort of waved me off of it. And then my curiosity got the better of me, and I played it, and I was like, what? T-Zone? T- uh, so, by the way, I'll apologize to the listeners. Uh, I know Tony in person in real life. I might be calling him by a silly nickname, and I can't help myself. So I apologize <laughs> if you guys have to put up with that. Uh, but yeah, so I was like, Tony, why do you not like this game? And we had a couple of spirited conversations about it, but it's one of those things where, uh, where we had a difference of opinion. And you yeah. got your money back, and I still own it. So, Tony, if you ever get the hankering to play Starships Unlimited again... Come on over to my house. I still own it. <laughs> okay. Uh, now, what we're going to discuss, and, and I think there will be some interesting differences of opinion here this week, you and I have both been playing three games that recently came out, but other than... Oh, and, and by the way, I, I should also tell the listeners who you are. Folks who are familiar with our front page have seen Tony Carnavale's uh, videos. You've done some writing for us. Uh, I would invite everyone listening, go to YouTube... And subscribe to the channel for Pony Carnival. Now, now, why right. why is that your channel name, Pony Carnival? Well, my it's it's sort of sounds like my actual name, which is Tony Carnivali, and uh, I just like the the mental image of a pony carnival. But it does not have anything to do with the popularity of My Little Pony. I am in no way a brony, which I'm afraid people might infer from my YouTube channel name. So I, please don't infer that. Yeah, I would definitely think a guy who who got the ch- the channel name Pony Carnival might be like into the My Little Pony thing. Um, right. Yeah, that's what I was afraid of. Yeah, but uh, no, just keep in mind it just rhymes with Tony Carnivale, Pony Carnival. It sounds very similar. Uh, I invite listeners go there, subscribe to his channel. There's some really good stuff. Uh, I think, as I told you, Tony, I absolutely love. The uh, baseball RPG thing you did. Oh, thank uh, you. I'm similarly hapless with uh, sports games, and uh, just enjoyed your, your perspective there. Um, <laughs> Thanks. So we've been playing three games that uh, recently came out, and uh, we've we've had some sort of informal conversations about them. But I'd like to continue those, and I'd like to start by asking you, Tony Carnavale, why on earth would we lump these three games together, and what games are they? The games are Invisible Ink, mm. Rebuild 3, Gangs of Deadville, mm-hmm. and Massive Chalice. And do they have anything in common besides the fact that they recently came out, uh, their recent releases? Well, uh, they have some things in common. They, 
they can all be played primarily in a turn-based mode, although actually each of them also features a for a part of the game that's in real time or they can be or one of them can be played in real time or turn based mode. Now, now, is... so, so real quick Tony, I want to say part of my job here and I want you to do this to me too. Yes. I want to try to shoot holes in why you're trying to lump them together. Uh, you know what? Here's the thing. Yes. I actually don't think they're all that similar. Ah, good. Um, okay. <laughs> well, well although, you, thanks for ruining the, the podcast topic right out of the gate. <laughs> well, you were going to shoot a hole. I, was, I didn't know I was going to have to uh, argue that they're similar because I actually don't think they're that similar. Okay. Although they, they all did appeal to me. Uh, I don't buy a whole lot of games, and I, I tend not to like a lot of the... Uh, a lot of real time. A lot. Uh, there's a lot of games that I'm not. That I know I'm not going to like. And so it's unusual that three new releases that are close to each other in release date. Uh, it's unusual that I buy so many games all within a short span. Uh, so there must be something similar because they all uh, appealed to me immediately. Um, although having played them. I cannot say that they continue to appeal to me the, the same way. Ah, well, good. Well, well, then here, let me see if you can poke a hole in this. And I was going, and the reason I brought that up is you mentioned they they can all be played turn based, but they all have a real time option. Uh, there's nothing real time in Invisible Ink, is there? Isn't that entirely turn based? Uh, there. Oh, you're right. I was remembering the the. Uh... For some reason, I was picturing the the strategic world map and imagining it progressing right. in real time. But you're absolutely right; that is not in real time. Uh, there's absolutely nothing real time about Invisible Ink. Okay, and so I, I, I yeah I shot down that comparison. Yeah, you um, did. You really did. But okay, well, let me see what you can do with this one because, other than the fact that they've all come out recently, they're all indie games. There's that as well, but that's way too broad a category. Um, what do you think of this, Tony? I think their their commonality. And part of the reason I respond to all three of them very strongly, I, I really like all three of these games. I think you are a, a little bit less uh, enthusiastic about one in particular. We'll get to that shortly. But the yes. reason I really, really like all three of these games, they are strategy games that revolve around making you care about characters. Now, normally that's something that, that an RPG does, you know, Pillars of Eternity or Baldur's Gate or whatever. Those are, those are RPGs. They're story-driven they have character advancements, uh, you know, strong narrative through lines. They want you to care about the characters, but in the context of an RPG. I think all three of these games, they're not RPGs. I mean, they have elements, but they're mainly primarily played like strategy games. And that includes, I'm not, that includes like very tactical combat stuff. Like I think of that as a strategy game, but they're designed to make you care about your characters. So how do, how do you, you feel know what? about that as a connection? I think you nailed it. Uh, I was trying to think of, of one thing that connected all three games, and I'm kind of embarrassed that I didn't, co didn't come up with that because that, I think, nails it. They, oh. they all do try to make you care about characters and succeed to varying degrees. So then let's, let's then, uh, now that we've unpacked that then, uh, let's, <laughs> let's jump to uh, one of the topics we want to talk about in, in terms of each of these three games. Uh, how do you feel about the character development? Obviously... You know, taking a character from low level to high level, uh, making it, uh, basically leveling it up, developing your character, caring more about it as time goes on. Uh, how do you feel that they all compare in that regard? Um, well, I, I, I enjoyed one of the games very, very much. 
and I didn't enjoy one of the games at all, mm-hmm. uh, and I enjoyed the third one kind of a medium amount. So okay. <laughs> it would be easy for me to say, and should I tell you which one was which? At sure, this yeah, time, let's or? go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Yes. And, and then so, at the end, we're, we're definitely going to break down. Well, we can certainly let this be part of the conversation on the way, but yeah. at the end, we're going to sort of codify which ones we like best and worst, and it, it's going to be no secret. I think this will become apparent early on. But, but yeah, so T-Zone, how would you rank them? And I presume the character development is part of why you did or didn't like them. Well, yeah, it, it is. Um, in terms of, oh, oh are you asking? Okay, sorry. So, are you asking how I would rank them or how I'd rank character development in each one? Well, oh, sorry. So you did say, should I say? Yeah. So go ahead and real quickly. Okay. You you Great. let slip that you really liked one of them. You yeah. liked one of them a medium amount. You didn't like one of them. So correct. Don't keep us in suspense. Okay. Spill the beans. Great. So my favorite one of these games is Invisible Ink. I really loved it. I became obsessed with it for a while, playing it uh, to a degree that rarely happens for me. Um, almost so much that I that I stopped enjoying it in a weird way, but I I still really really like it, and I'm I'm going to go back to it and and love it anew. Mm-hmm. Um, that's my number one by far. My number two is Massive Chalice, which I think has a lot of really cool ideas uh, and executes some of them very well. Uh, but unfortunately, most of your time is spent doing stuff that has nothing to do with those cool ideas. Mm-hmm. And for now, my least favorite, although I am willing to uh, continue evaluating it, is Rebuild 3, um, which kind of bounced off me in a weird way. I, I just... Have not. I, I haven't really figured it out, but there's there's some interface and informational issues that that annoy the heck out of me. Mm-hmm. And maybe you'll be able to uh, to tell me what I'm doing wrong with that game because it, it really right now is my distant third. Okay. Okay. So uh, now uh, for me, I would go oddly enough, and and I'll explain why as we're talking later. I think my favorite is Massive Chalice, and my least wow. favorite is Rebuild. Um, but I still really, really like Rebuild a lot, and I think one of the reasons it's my least favorite, uh, I'm super acquainted with the previous game, Rebuild 2, did it even have a number? I forget how she's numbered them, but I played a lot of the previous one, so even though I really like Rebuild 3, it doesn't have that kind of pop of a fresh new design that Invisible Ink and and Massive Chalice have for me. But for some Mm -hmm. of the reasons that you really, I think, that you're sort of middling on Massive Chalice, I suspect that those are the same reasons that I really, really like Massive Chalice. Um, and actually, let's use that to kick off a discussion of, of each game's character development. Okay. You know, how do these games make us care about these characters? Um, yeah. So let's save Massive Chalice for last, because I think that might be one... That, that one's kind of problematic. Uh, Invisible Ink, you said, was your favorite. Uh, does the, the way... It presents its characters. Was that part of why it's your favorite? Um, you know, I think Invisible Ink lightly pencils a sketch of its characters and lets you uh, read a lot into it and maybe project something into it. But I think each character um, does have a slight personality, a, sl- a thinly presented personality. Like uh, the characters have little bios, which. Uh, you know, could be forgettable. But then in the missions, at the beginning of the mission, uh, one character or maybe two characters will have a little line of dialogue that doesn't really have much to do with the mission in particular, but invariably uh, portrays something about that character's personality. Um, 
and I think they the writing of those lines, even though the, you know all told, it's fewer than a hundred words probably. Uh, it's uh, I think it's it's well written, um, which is also something I can say for Massive Chalice. Um, but uh, yeah, and then the characters in Invisible Ink develop uh, in ways that you really that you decide because uh, they they sort of they when you start with a new character. Uh, who has no experience and is starting on the first mission, they come with a couple uh, items and they have maybe one innate ability, but really what they are is potential. They have potential, and it's your decision uh, what skills you want to boost, what items you want to augment them with, um, and it's partly determined by what you come across in the game. Uh, You know, you might go the whole game and not find the super cool cloaking vest that cloaks everybody in a four square radius, which I really love. Um, but, uh, yeah, the characters kind of develop as you choose to develop them, which I think is really cool. And I, I think one of the, um, complaints or it's more an observation that I think some people take issue with about invisible ink is that when they start out, as you mentioned, there, there's not, it, it's a lot of potential, but in ways it is, not directionless potential, but there's nothing like a skill tree for each character. Mm-hmm. The character starts mm-hmm. as, a, as an empty template. Not an empty, it's not entirely empty. There are a couple of base level things that, that the character begins with. Right. But where you go from there is entirely up to you. And theoretically, you could develop each character, like any given character in any given direction. Like when yep. you start I with... Would say- oh, I would say that's a feature uh, mm-hmm. of the game. I think that's, that's great. Uh, it lets you try different strategies and uh, and gives the game some more replayability. Well, and I think what makes that work, Tony, what's crucial here is that each decision you make is hugely important. Um, yeah. There are so few decisions you make in the lifetime of an Invisible Ink character um, that each one has a lot of weight. Uh, you know, you don't level up their skills willy-nilly. It's super expensive to invest yeah. in a new skill. So a character who comes with a skill level of two rather than one, that's a huge difference right out of the gate. Yeah, that's uh, that's absolutely true. And then the that, that's with, the thing that... Oh, go ahead. That, I was just going to say that's the thing that Invisible Ink really carries across the board, the, uh, the significance of decisions. Um, and really, it does a great job of only presenting you with decisions that are meaningful and important. Right. I love that. Right. One, one of the, uh, and this will get a little bit into the combat system that, that, that the two games use when they get into, and it's not even really combat in Invisible Ink, it's more like stealth, but, but the little tactical portions of the games, um, I, I think they have this kind of board game simplicity to them, where there are fewer systems interacting, but that makes each one all that much more important. Uh, you know, a, a lot of, in, uh, in the olden days, uh, these, these tactical games like the original XCOM, uh, they would have a whole bunch of little finicky things you could do, and that made each decision relatively less important. You had many more decisions, yeah. but they they sort of got lost in in all these decisions you were making. Uh, yep. I, I remember distinctly. There's a game that obviously influences uh, Invisible Ink called Shadow Watch, um, and I remember someone complaining about in Shadow Watch, uh, you can't kneel. You know, your character can't <laughs> kneel to be more precise or to take cover behind a window. Um, and that was a complaint back in those days because in a game like Jagged Alliance, 
you could kneel, you could go prone, you could change your facing. Uh, at the time, you could, Jack Hunter, you, you could do crazy gymnastics. I mean, anything <laughs> you wanted to do, that was in there. Um, and Jagged Alliance really was the king of this, like, lots and lots of detail and lots and lots of little tiny micro decisions, uh, super granular. Um, and that's fine for their design decision. But that requires a lot of patience and untangling, and, and you have to be willing to make decisions with minimal impact. Um, yeah. Invisible yeah. Ink and Massive Chalice, I think, the polar opposite of that. Uh, and yes, and, and I agree with you about Shadow Watch. And by the way, I also loved Shadow Watch. And I think that's one thing that, that uh, is so wonderful about Invisible Ink. Uh, the developers of Invisible Ink really looked at Shadow Watch, and you can tell they understood everything yeah. that worked about Shadow Watch, a game that nobody played <laughs> uh, and that I thought never going to receive uh, kind of an update. And uh, they, they iterated on it in a wonderful way that uh, I think may be better than Shadow Watch. Oh, oh yeah. And I would agree as well. Um, yeah. Now let's, uh, uh, let's talk then about Massive Chalice. How did you feel about the character development in that? So Massive Chalice does a lot of things with its characters that I like um, primarily it they are kind of I was gonna say they're blank slates now that's not entirely Ooh. true because because when they're born they have obviously they have attributes and they have uh, they have flaws and they ha- and traits and all these things but personality wise they they have no personality right they are they are nothing but cogs in your machine. Now, here I'm going to disagree with you because there's actually a, a, a one category of those traits, Tony, is called personality. Like, <laughs> whereas, whereas in, in Invisible Ink, a starting character is basically which of the four skills is a two instead of a one, do you have starting equipment, and what is your starting augment? You know, those are the only things you have to go on in Invisible Ink, but in Massive Chalice, you've got stats, you've got a list of the, 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 the different traits and personalities, um... Yes, we have a list of the different traits and personalities, but to see that somebody is, I don't know, what's one of the personality types listed? Like a, uh, a rebel or cocky or... Yeah, um, right. yeah. The only, you know, that has a that has an effect on the tactical combat, right. but it doesn't have any effect in terms of how you, of, of the character as a person, you know what I mean? It's not, it, it, it's, it might as well, it's like a stat on a baseball card. It, it's not a character in a story. Oh, and right, neither right. are the characters in... I mean, neither are the characters in Invisible Ink per se, but somehow, maybe because you're only going to deal with really four of them to six of them over the course of the game, uh, you're able to project more onto each character, and they look significantly different in Invisible Ink. No, you're absolutely right. They kind of all blend together. Their faces almost look identical. Uh, They almost don't look human in Massive Chalice. They kind of, they're, they're... it's a weird art style, which I like a lot, actually, but it's a very kind of angular art style that makes them almost look like insects. Uh, it almost removes their humanity in a way. Oh. <laughs> I swear, I'm just coming up with this, but it's like, it, it, whereas Invisible Ink, they're almost, they're like little cartoons filled with personality, and you see a little portrait of their face when yeah. you select one, and they look, uh, you can, they have facial expressions and the portrait, and they're moving around, and the, it really conveys so much, so much character. Um, and in, in Massive Chalice, they're almost 
they're almost faceless. Okay, that I definitely get what you're saying. I agree with you as far as like their presentation and their 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 literal personality. Yeah, you're absolutely right. There's almost nothing to what we get in Massive Chalice, and I would say to you, Tony, that's because they're they're all procedurally generated. I mean, if sure. you're going to get you're going to get a hundred of these in an yeah. average playthrough, whereas in, in in Invisible Ink, each character is very very meticulously handcrafted by their artists and their writers, and yes, uh, yes. so yeah, you're absolutely right there. So yeah, and, right. and I love what Massive Chalice is doing as well, as far as s- simulating uh, generations of a uh, of a nation essentially, and mm-hmm. uh, I. I don't mean to fault them for for procedurally generating hundreds of characters. I think that's really really cool, and I think they did a really good job. But it takes a lot of work for me to remember. Oh, this is uh, Priscilla Lightshin right. or whatever. Right. Uh, she's the 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 super fast ranger, uh, and and for me to pin anything else onto her than those basic details, which are hard enough to remember when I'm dealing with maybe fifty. People, uh, you know, living in my country at any given time, uh, is uh, is is a lot to ask of me. <laughs> and and also uh, the character development in a way, like all of those traits and and personality modifiers that I mentioned, those are out of your control. I mean, you're not right. making decisions; they're they're happening to you. Well, and then, and then further, I mean, you, you're right. You're, you there is a kind of eugenics program right. aspect to the game, um, but but ultimately you're, you're rolling dice and hoping for good things. Uh, you're not picking things like you are in Invisible Ink. In Invisible right. Ink, nothing ever happens in character development unless I make it happen, you know, unless I buy it or choose it. Yeah. Um, so, so a lot of the character development in Massive Chalice is entirely out of your control. Not entirely, but it is out of your control in a way that it's not in Invisible Ink. Right. And um, I, I also like that, though. I, I, I don't need to have total control over everything um, as long as the, the decisions that I do make are, are meaningful. Now, how do you feel about the fact, though, that any given character in Massive Chalice, you're probably only going to play him or her in maybe three tops four battles? Love it. I think that's great. Really? Yes. <laughs> I was sure that that would drive you batty, because I think I can imagine <laughs> no, a lot I... of people complain about it. Okay, why do you think that's great, T-Zone? You've got this character. You're supposed to be attached to this character. You're only going to get to play this character sometimes in just two battles, sometimes just one. Um, yeah, that's right. Why do you love that? And and there's so much character churn. Why on earth do you love that, Tony? Well, um, there is, you know, a million games where you try to keep your your small squad of characters alive from the beginning of the game to the end, including Invisible Ink. Um, that's almost every game, right? Uh, it, it, I think Massive Chalice really does do something that that very few games do, and that is try something that I've never seen before in a game, which is. Uh, simulate this kind of churn of of generations, and people are born and people die. And your goal is not so much to shepherd one person or a small group of people from the beginning of the game to the end, but rather to uh, structure your nation and your families um, and the the relics which are sort of like super cool weapon heirlooms that get passed down mm-hmm. uh, make sure that you ha- that you uh, keep your families alive uh, that have relics because if you have a relic that belongs to the aforementioned Leichten family what a weird name by the way um, you're never, and the Leichten family dies out well the Sorry, you're never going to get to use that relic again. So, uh, which is a, an issue that I ran into with one of my games, and I loved dealing with that conundrum where I had 
uh, a character who was super good with this relic and she could one shot anything. And I realized, oh, wait, she's the last one. They Everybody else died out. And she's like 37 now. And if I'm going to have an heir to this relic weapon that is so awesome, I need to retire her from the battlefield and have her popping out babies so that she can have offspring that can inherit this weapon. And I thought that was a really cool decision to ask me to make. Like, when do I pull her off the battlefield? Which already, you know, as you said, characters, a given any given character is not going to be in a ton of battles. So I'm going to have to shorten her already short career um, to make sure that in the long run, I get to keep that relic in the family. I thought that was really cool. And I think the relics make up for... I, so I'm, I'm with you 110% on this, Tony. I, I love this aspect of Massive Chalice, uh, that character churn. Um, I didn't at first. I was I was wary of it. I was like, surely this isn't going to work. Um, but whereas normally there's persistence with a character, here they substitute that with these awesome relics that you're talking about. Uh, I couldn't tell you the names of most of my characters, but I remember on my first playthrough... You know, I had one relic uh, named uh, Prudence and another one named Catalyst. And I remember <laughs> I remember those were both uh, Caberjack, like, punchy things. Uh, yeah. And they both became super powerful. Uh, you know, the normal persistence I would have with, like, a favorite character was embodied in this relic instead. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then also there's persistence in, like you mentioned, this Lichtenstein chick, you know, her being the last of her family. Uh, that bloodline you were attached to, you know, that yeah. house. Um, so whereas there may not be persistence in individual characters, their family, their house has persistence, and their relics have persistence. Yes. Uh, and I would say, uh, expanding on what you said, because you touched on both of these, two other things that the extreme hero churn in Massive Chalice manages to accomplish. Um, the first is... Uh, that death, when you lose a character, a high-level character in the, in a battle, it's not that painful. Um, you know, some people, I imagine, when they play XCOM, uh, I, I'm pretty sure you and I like this about XCOM, and we, we enjoy playing like on Iron Man, but I think a lot of people who play XCOM, they lose their highest-level guy, they restart the battle. Um, right. And in some regards, you know, if you're playing a really difficult game, losing a high-level character... In XCOM, that can be you can be screwed. Um, you know, you suddenly you've got a, a bunch of squaddies. Uh, you're playing the harder missions. You're going to go into this like a death spiral uh, by not keeping up on the power curve. Uh, in Massive Chalice, you're going to lose that high level character, whether it's to old age or death in battle. Yep. Uh, and that's a fact of the game, and it's built into the power curve, into the difficulty level. Um, so. You know, it sucks when you lose a high-level character, but because you're going to lose her anyway, whether she dies of old age or in a shower of body acid from one of those rupture <laughs> things, uh, her death will happen. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and you know it'll happen before she even... Sometimes you know it'll happen before she gets to another battle. So you can be like, you know what? She's she's 67. Uh, she's not going to live to another battle. She's ninth level. She's about to unlock that last skill thing on the... That last skill on the tree. Oh, yeah. Just go ahead and be reckless, you know. Right, right. Uh, go out in a blaze of glory. Uh, so, so that's something that you don't get in other tactical RPGs where you've got a high-level character. Uh, yep. And then the third thing it accomplishes, um, and I think as far as uh, from a gameplay perspective, the most important thing that it accomplishes is it forces you to mix up which pieces you're playing with in in a battle. Uh, when I play XCOM, you know, I've got my 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 sniper and my 
assault gunner and you know you've got your unit composition just like you would have in a party in an rpg uh when i play massive chalice i don't have that luxury sometimes i have to do a battle with all hunters you know um i think that's great i think hunters are the only class you should be dealing with oh i i I suspect, and I, I think I'm here too, I suspect you and I, Tony, don't quite appreciate the potential awesomeness of alchemists. Okay. Because um, they were the ones that I used the least, uh, but but as I got to the end of my, my game, I started seeing some of the cool, flexible things you could do with them, how they could interact with the terrain, their, their area effect damage stuff. Um, yeah. And furthermore, I know, I, I think there's a bunch of classes in here that I never even got close to, to unlocking. Uh Oh, yeah, me neither. Yeah, so I, I just feel like there's this this really ambitious system that, that encourages you to play with different kinds of pieces on this board. Um, and because, you know, the pieces are are, are very discreet, they have, uh, they have sort of broad, powerful actions. Um, you know, there, n- no class is like any other class. There's a lot of crossover, but you either have a melee fighter, a ranged fighter, or an area of effect fighter. Um you know, they have very simple, definite roles in this cool tactical system. Uh, so being forced to play with all hunters, for instance, uh, you know, makes for really memorable battles. Uh, and I love how that mixes that up with the hero churn. Um, so, yeah, so I, I, I expected you were going to hate that part of Massive Jealous. Uh, well, I defy expectations, Tom. All right, well, let's see. What then do... Uh, let, let's talk about... So you, you Rebuild 3 bounced off of you. Uh, did yes. it have anything to do with the characters in that? Because Rebuild 3, um, one of the things that I've said uh, many times about horror movies is a good horror movie is never about the monster. Uh, it's about the people facing the monster. And that's certainly true of a good zombie movie. It's not about the zombies. It's about the people trying to survive with the zombies. I think that's Rebuild's approach is rather than focusing on how cool it is to fight zombies, let's just focus on the survivors and their their drama and their interplay and their development. Um, so was the character play and or the character progression in rebuild part of the reason that one bounced off of you? Possibly. Uh, it felt to me um, and I this is the one of the three that I played the least, so I I may have some assumptions about this game that are completely wrong. But uh, anytime a story um, page popped up like you'll be playing the game and then sometimes a little book will appear in the middle of the screen right. and uh, it'll have a little paragraph of story and a little picture uh, it just seemed like they were drawing names of characters that were in the game uh, from a hat so for instance if I started with five characters and I'd be going along and doing missions and things a, a book thing would pop up and it would say you know, Jennifer is mad at, at Vito because blah, 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 blah. And it's just like a Mad Lib where they randomly plugged in the names Jennifer sure. and Vito. Uh, it's not like these are characters who behave this way from game to game. They are just random collections of stats, names, and, and icons. Uh, and uh, to me, that I mean, that kind of thing... Uh, is in a lot of games. That's actually something that happens in Massive Chalice as well. And it really uh, does not... <clears throat> it's it's It does not work on me. <laughs> I, 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 just, yeah. I think where you see this most, Tony, is... Uh, and I don't know if you got this far with it, but after a character has been around for a while, and I'm not sure what triggers this threshold, but at a certain point, um, there will be a little ellipsis symbol on a character. 
and you click on that and they tell you some of their backstory and then you turn okay. the little page and you pick a trait there's a list of three traits that you can pick for that character you pick one of those traits it becomes a permanent modifier on the character the character might have uh, you know firearms training or maybe it's a bookworm or the character uh, is a loner who gets a bonus for being alone on missions but doesn't make friends easily you know you pick one of those traits and then you're playing with the character and then as it goes on the ellipses symbol appears again it shows you that first page with their backstory and then you turn the page and the backstory continues it's almost like in a, a mass effect game or something where you're learning you know you're you're gradually talking to your party members uh, so you're kind of making and you're making choices that affect their backstory sort of that uh well the backstory actually doesn't change but but what what you do choose is which random trait you get to pick i mean it's a it's a threshold that unlocks a new page of the backstory and okay. it also gives you three stats, which I think are tangentially related to the story, and you pick one of them. Uh, okay. So eventually, okay. you know, your character, who's also got skills that are leveling up, is going to have these little uh, traits, basically, that, that can mm -hmm. modify them. Uh, and each time you get to pick a trait, you're unlocking a new page of backstory. Now, mm -hmm. kind of a cool mechanic. I mean, we all have seen that sort of thing in Bioware games, but... Uh, where I agree with you that it feels like a Mad Lib is sometimes you'll have like a character. Uh, for instance, I rescued a, a geeky hacker dude from one of the factions, mm -hmm. and uh, he came to work for me. He had like purple hair and glasses, um, a high engineering skill, uh, and he was with me long enough that the ellipses popped up. And so I clicked on it, and suddenly he starts telling me this backstory about how he was raised at sea. You know, he was a, <laughs> he was a sailor, and it just made no sense. It was obviously, you know, it's randomly assigned a backstory to a given character, and it kind of took me out of the game. Um, but when it well, came come on, Tom. Everybody's familiar with the classic archetype of sea yes. nerd. <laughs> sea nerd, exactly, right. Uh, so in, in that regard, yeah, it definitely feels mad libby. Um, yeah. Now, uh, how did you feel, though, about the skill system of, as you, as you use a character, they improve the skill they're using. Uh, right. You can equip them with a weapon and an item, and those can affect their skills. Uh, you can yeah. send them to school. You can train them up. Um, so that whole character progression, just in terms of gameplay mechanics, did, did that work for you? Um, you know, it's fairly... I feel like all that stuff is kind of... Uh, very familiar, mm -hmm. so I wouldn't say that it didn't work on me. But uh, uh, you know, it's it's nothing. It's 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 nothing unlike anything that I I would expect. You know, it didn't surprise me, and um, uh, it didn't excite me. Right. There there are I think a bunch of uh, I think there's a bunch of detail lurking in Rebuild Three that can gradually emerge and. That you could easily miss, and I just want to like point out one thing that, that comes from that system. Yeah. That really oh, I'm like. sure I missed a lot, actually. Uh, so, uh, you you start off by making a leader character, uh, and the leader you picks uh, basically a role. Like he could be a soldier or a leader or a builder, um, and then at some point, I think when you finish, the idea is that leader is persistent through each each time you play a session of rebuild. You know, in rebuild, mm -hmm. you start with a city. Eventually, you unlock a mission uh, that lets you move on to the next city. Uh, you know, a mission in the game. Like, it's one of those things that you just assign somebody the time it takes them to fill up the bars based on their skill. When right. they complete the mission, something triggers. So this final mission, the thing that is triggered, is uh, 
by default, I think you move your leader and three other characters to a new map. And you can start a new map with all of their skills and equipment intact. You, 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 mm -hmm. you carry them over. Uh, so at one point when your leader is on the way to unlocking that mission, you decide what kind of leader he is. You know, is he a president, a prime minister, a preacher? Uh, you choose yeah. from among titles. Yeah, I got uh, there. What is that about? So that will give you, I think, a trait. So I chose because when you're when you're choosing your constitution, which is basically the set of parameters uh, that determines things like how much ammo they use, how much they eat, what their guard duty is, their happiness, stuff like that. Uh, it then tells you if you're like a republic or a democracy or a theocracy. Um, so my choices made my guy a theocracy. Uh, and that was partly because the, the happiness buildings in Rebuild are either a bar or a church. And uh, you can use those to give your, your guys a, a happiness boost over time. So I had a church. I spent a fair amount of time with my leader in the church preaching. So just from an RPG perspective, I was like, cool, he's a preacher. We have a theocracy. Um, you know, I'll choose that title preacher for him. Uh, and he, he then acquires the title devout, which just means he gets a happiness bonus from, uh, from churches. So that happened in the first game. In the second game, uh, devout apparently works like a virus in that it will infect other characters in your community. Um, I don't know if there's any counterpart with the bar, like, like lush or alcoholic or something, uh, but, but devout, uh, you'll get a message saying, hey, so-and-so has gotten devout from such-and-such such another character. So eventually you've got this community that is based on, that it basically gets a happiness boost from a church. Um, and devout characters, incidentally, uh, are also get a happiness boost if you choose to let women uh, off the hook for guard duty. This idea being that women are too precious a commodity, you know, they have a more traditional perspective on how women should be treated. Um, uh -huh. So there are kind of these little uh, systemic Easter eggs in there like this yeah. uh, that cool. I really enjoyed discovering. Uh, and that was part of the character development for me. Okay. Um, yeah, that sounds fun. So let, let's talk about what did bounce off of you uh, as far as rebuild. So what, what ultimately okay. was it that made it not work for you? Well, um, uh, a few things. There is a lot of issues I had with the interface, and maybe, mm -hmm. maybe I was doing something wrong, and you can uh, explain it to me, or maybe, maybe, I'm onto something. We'll see. Okay. Um, so, when you're about to assign a character to a mission or a task, you know, like for instance, clear out the zombies from this building. Mm -hmm. um, there, you know. How do I find out how long that task is going to take? Well, as far as I know, the way to do it is you drag the little person icon to the building you want to clear out, and you assign him to do the task you want him to do. Uh, then you click him, and a window slides into view on the left, and then there's a little clock. There's a whole lot of information in that window, and there's also a little clock icon. Uh, and, it, and if you mouse over the clock icon and wait for a couple seconds, a tooltip will pop up that will say, you know, this task will be done in 2.4 days or whatever. Right. Well, how come I have to go through all that to find out how long it's going to take uh, to finish that task? Why can't I know before I drag the guy over or, before, you know, before, how long it's going to take? And once I've dragged that guy over there... Uh, and I want to make the task go by faster, so I'm going to drag another character onto that square to join in, mm -hmm. and this other character has a certain set of stats or whatever. 
how much is that going to reduce the time by? Well, if I want to find that out, I have to drag the little guy over, uh, do that whole process again. Click the guy, click the uh, window, mouse over the clock, and then it's gone down by a certain amount. That's an awful lot of, of steps to go through. It's all information that the game is totally happy to give you if you go through this rigmarole. Um, but why do I have to go through that rigmarole to get that information? And am I going to do that every single time? Well, no, of course not. So what I result, what I resorted to was just kind of dragging guys around the map and dr- plopping them down and not really caring how long it was going to take, just being like, all right, well, this will get done when it gets done. Uh, I don't know that I was doing things efficiently. And the game, uh, it, it wouldn't have been hard to do things uh, efficiently. I'm not a min-maxer or anything. I just want to play the game by the rules, and the game doesn't uh, show me the information I want to know in an, in an easy way. I, so that I, annoyed the crap out of me. Right. And, and I think you're, you're what, part of what, uh, what what's going on here is that unlike Massive Chalice and Invisible Ink, which have this really elegant board game simplicity, uh, Rebuild does have a lot of little finicky uh, numbers-based systems like you know, the, the length of time it takes to do a mission is based on the number of people doing it, their total skills, uh, that sort of thing. So yeah. so you're, you're having to fish for the math, basically. Um, but one thing that I find is that the more you play, I, I think the way that you're supposed to play Rebuild, ultimately, is uh, once you're on larger maps, uh, you are basically moving around stacks of dudes, and they're like a stack of chips, rather than one at a time, and you have your building stack, your combat stack, you know, your leadership stack, which is probably just a couple of characters, uh, you have individual scavengers, uh, but, but I think part of what's going on is that Rebuild is assuming that you're not going to base the decision on how long something takes, you're just going to do it anyway, and you're going to have a general idea just from experience, you know, it's going to take like one day for this stack to reclaim an area, it's going to take two days to turn rubble into a farm, uh, I think they're just sort of assuming that you'll eventually get a sense for it. But yeah, you're right. Uh, there's a lot of numbers in Rebuild, and some of them you definitely have to fish for. I'm with you there. Yeah, and yeah. like, let's say, so I have my combat stack, and they're they're killing zombies in a building, mm-hmm. and then a, a mob of masked Zeds, as the game calls it, shows up at my border, and I know there's multiple ways to deal with them, with traps and whatnot, but let's say I don't have traps, mm-hmm. and I want to drag guys over to defend against it. Well, how many guys am I going to have to drag over into what hexes to, to change the danger of that uh, right. marauding zombie hex from... From, from red to green or whatever, like that's a mystery to me, and it was a lot of trial and error, and it just got super annoying. I still don't really understand how, how combat works. Um, <clears throat> it's really but, weird, uh, isn't it? Like I, I uh, have gone through literally hundreds of battles and have seen so few of them fail. Like I think there's definitely yeah. something weird going on with the math. I have done so many battles at like a 15, and I don't know if that's a percentage. I presume it goes from 1 to 100. Um, I've done so many at 15 that have never failed. I mean, there's something right. going on here that unless the number is over like 30 or, or 60 or whatever, you're never going to lose a battle. Uh, now, you will sometimes get somebody injured. Uh, sometimes you'll lose equipment. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, there, there is a wiki, Tony, that I've seen that that shows calculations, and I haven't delved very far into it. Yeah, that's uh, where I'm out. Anytime I have to look right. at a wiki, right. I'm like, nope, there's plenty of games that don't require me to look at a wiki. Right. But I, I feel like with uh, with Rebuild, though, I don't think I, 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 I'm I okay with not knowing the specific numbers because it's not that sort of board gamey elegance. Like, I'm okay with know, kind though. of eyeballing it. and. Or, I think it's only not like, I, don't, I think it's only, it, it only 
eschews that board gamey elegance because she covers up information. I think I think the elegance all is there. I just think it's 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 obfuscated in a weird way. Well, and I wish I, it wasn't. I will tell you the, the way combat works is you look at every every given tile in the game has a defense value. Uh-huh. And you can always click on the tile and see the defense value. And that value will change if defenders are either in or adjacent to the tile. It will change mm-hmm. based on what the tile was previously. You know, police stations have a high defense value. Uh, fields have a low defense value. It'll change if you put upgrades in it, like a tower, and then a bunker, and then turrets. Those are the three levels. Uh, so it all comes down to that defense value versus the number of zombies in the adjacent tile and you can always see that and at any given time of day if it's not a mob making a beeline for uh for your walls uh at any given time there's a chance that a mob will reach a certain number and it will it will throw itself at the defense value um mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so the numbers oh, are that's there. the other that's another thing uh, yep. <laughs> so so uh yeah, so let's say there's two different zombie units, right. uh, one at one part of my one one right at the margin of of one part of my settlement, and one at the margin, the edge of another. Uh-huh. You know, I, I'm not sure which one is going to attack first. It seems like yep. whichever one showed up first is going to attack nope, first. Nope, nope, no, no, not at all. And that's okay. part of what I do like about the game is you, you have to think about the dimensions of how you expand. Uh, and that's also tied into how many defenders you have. Uh, yeah. Because if you have like weird little dog legs or, or something, uh, and, and zombies mass up near it, you don't know. You're going to have a hard time covering all of your walls. Uh, and there's there's a whole different there's a that's a whole system there. Is how do you mm-hmm. expand your territory? Uh, those little two tile farms and such. Those can mm-hmm. be hugely hugely helpful in certain areas because they have they're easier to defend and they're easier to defend around them. Um, Mm -hmm. so yeah, there's a whole system there. And when you have a zombie, by the way, in a crook where he can go to one of two spaces, you're never sure which one he's going to go into. So you have to be careful about building. Well, don't they go into the space with the lowest defensive value? That's a good question. I do not know that. No, I actually think that's what the tutorial, that's one thing I do think I know from Ah. the tutorial. Well, wait a minute. Then what, what? Okay. So I guess you could lure them. Hmm. I guess that makes sense, though, but... I didn't think I'd be teaching you something about Rebuild tonight. Oh, well, thank you, Tony. Yeah, <laughs> glad to know that. Um, but I do I do like that, uh, you know, I, I agree with you. The numbers are there. Um, I played for a long time before I realized there was a way to toggle uh, shading to show you how many zombies are in an area and the symbols to show you whether or not there are food and equipment there. I played for so long without that, and I was constantly having to click on a tile, look at right. the little bar... Um, but for defense value, I do wish there was like a, an easier way to see defense values. Um, so I'm yeah. with you there. And the other thing, you know, this I'm now I'm just I'm just uh, I, I'm just dogpiling on this game. Well, if it's possible to have a one person dogpile, but it's, uh, you know, I, I feel like if this were a board game, the way the uh, the icons of the characters cover up the tiles they're on and the terrain, you would be saying that's covering important information, which ah, is a very right. valid criticism. Uh, Cause it's, it's impossible to tell for me at least uh, what, ter- what type of terrain is underneath each unit. Now, maybe as you play, you can recognize the terrain by what it looks like in the margins around the, the, the character tile, right. but I wasn't, you know, I had a hard enough time recognizing it when it, when it wasn't covered. Um, uh, yeah, for me, I can definitely tell. And I think it partly depends too on the zoom level. Like it's, it's super, uh-huh. uh, 
I actually love the interface in this game, partly because the interface in the last rebuild, uh, it makes so many advances over the last game. Um, really? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, just as far <laughs> as assigning the characters, uh, like if you want to take a character out of a stack and move him or her to a new mission, it's super easy to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's How do you feel about the paucity of hotkeys? Uh, I have not, that, that would normally really bothered me, but I think, like, what hotkeys do you think are missing? I, I, I can't think of any hotkey I wish was there. Well, there's, there. Oh, by the way, I'll tell you a hotkey real quick. Uh, control H will get rid of all the character, uh, circles. Oh, you okay. You want to see a tile, but, yeah, so what okay. hotkeys do you, do you, do you wish? Well, I don't know. I just know that there's a whole lot of clicking and, and, like, multi-layer, like, click on a stack and then the little guy's sprout out of it and then you click on one of the guy and i it, it, it just feels like the keyboard is almost not used at all yeah it's a, uh, it's a very mouse driven game and i think part of what's going on is she's she's definitely gearing it up for an ipad release as well right yeah and right. that definitely shows yeah um but no I'm, I'm resigned to having to use my mouse in rebuild um yeah. well what's something that you do like or is there anything that, that does work for you about rebuild um i really would like to like it i mean i, I played it thinking that it could be right up my alley. Um, but I was just not enjoying it. Uh, and one interesting thing that she does with it is uh, there are a, there's a real-time and a turn-based mode, and the real-time mode, is I know, is new to rebuild. And I think, Tom, at first you were dubious about how, how that was going to work. Was one mode going to be uh, more balanced in favor of the player than the other and how what how what do you think about that the turn-based mode yeah the turn-based mode now is a joke you are completely gimping yourself you know you you are so you're playing so sub-optimally in the turn-based mode that i cannot imagine going back to that uh so the hotkey that i use the most and that i'm so glad is in there is the space bar of course i mean that's crucial yeah and i really wish there was a way to automatically pause when a mission ends by the way yeah, uh, oh me too. I was wishing that every all every second. Yeah. I'd be like, well, how come this can't auto auto pause? I'm hitting I'm gonna hit the space bar as soon as the mission ends. Yeah. Why I have to be staring at the screen with my hand poised over the space bar. Right, right. It's exactly. frustrating in so many ways. And I you know, people love this game and they and, and there's so much that's been written about the previous iterations and how what a uh, cool turn based design it is, and it's it's frustrating to me to hear that the uh that the turn based mode is gimped in this version. I don't know why she made that choice if if that's the case uh, i do really favor turn-based games and uh it's a shame when uh when a good turn-based game goes real time it happens a lot well to be fair it's not it's not real time in the sense that you ever have to juggle i mean beyond tapping yeah. the space bar and by the way there's never a time that a mission ends that there's not a pop-up on the right you know a little wind a little I know. message so for me it's not like i'm having to you know, watch with eagle eyes. As soon as I see a pop-up, I just instinctively tap it with my thumb. And I suspect, too, it's a complaint she hears a fair amount. I I would be very surprised if that's not patched in eventually. Um, But as far as it being, it's not real-time in the sense that you're constantly being overloaded with information. It's not like an RTS, for instance, where you have to think uh, in real-time. But it is continuous time, like a paradox game. And you can set how quickly time goes by. Now, I tend to play at the quickest time, but I'm always pausing whenever a mission ends and then reassigning someone. Uh, And by the way, that's another area where you start to learn how long something takes, is that any little stack of characters has that green bar that fills up. Uh, 
and you start to learn how quickly people do things by watching that green bar fill up around a character. No, I know, yeah, I know, and I, I would do that. Um, yeah. I uh, yeah, I just felt like all the inf- in a game. The way I feel is if a game will divulge information to you, mm-hmm. um, it should divulge that information in as concise and direct and as a uh, few clicks as possible to get sure. to it way possible and rebuild fails that design uh, philosophy so badly um, that it really it really frustrated me I'm okay with not knowing everything it's but she lets you know everything if you're willing to slog through a, a million clicks right I think that's overstating I mean definitely there are things that are that are buried a click or two deep that could be surfaced better Um but the, 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 the information is there. You can get it in a more general way. Like the defense thing that you're talking about, if you want to know the number, you're right. You have to click in a couple of levels deep to figure it out. But if you just want to eyeball it, she gives you the information in terms of whether a zombie is uh, red, yellow, orange, or green. You know, And that's the danger level. Sure. And you sort of jigger those. You jigger, okay, if I have these many people here, then this zombie is yellow and that one is green. I put this guy here. Okay, now they're both green. Um, yeah. So the information is there, but you're right. If you want the specific numbers, if you want that kind of board game elegance that you and I really want in our games, you do have to click a couple of levels. I'll definitely grant you that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I would like to know, you know, ideally, I would like to know before I drag a character to a tile, how is this going to affect things on that tile? I feel like you could convey that, and there's games that that convey that kind of information easily. And, and this isn't one of them. It definitely, you know, it didn't bother you as much and, and that's okay. <laughs> but let me tell you one of the things that I do love about rebuild three that I think it does better than invisible ink and massive chalice. Whoa. Um, there's something, I don't have a term for this, but let me try to coin a term. Uh, there's some games where there are two types of gameplay. Uh, XCOM is a primary example where you've got the strategic global map and you've got the tactical battles. Uh, and there's something called like the interruption effect, where you're grooving on the the, the global uh, yep. map. You know, you're building your base. You're waiting for for new characters to come in or research laser rifles or whatever. Yep. And a battle pops up, and you're like, oh, geez, I don't yep. I don't really want to fight now. I was waiting for this laser rifle to be done. Uh, and that's going to happen in any game that has a kind of a bifurcated design, where there's two levels of gameplay. Yeah. Uh, that was an issue for me in Massive Chalice. Absolutely, me too. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm waiting on research to get finished. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm having to figure out who's going to be the new uh, sage right. Uh, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm assigning things, and then, oh, a battle comes up. And I'm like, oh, I was grooving on this kingdom simulator. Now I have to play yeah. a tactical game, eh, whatever. Invisible Ink isn't that bad, because Invisible Ink is so primarily the little tactical sneaky bits. Uh, but still, there's that thing where between battles and invisible ink, I get a breather, and sometimes I'm not quite ready to just jump into another battle. It's kind of interrupting. Uh, you know, it, it, it takes some... You have to decide to click on a new battle. I mean, that's Sure, a, but invisible ink does not give you another task to do that's right. going to be interrupted by a battle. It, between battles, you can upgrade your guys with credits. You can buy right. stuff from Monster, who's like the little shopkeeper. Uh and all that you do on your own time, you know, it's usually pretty easy to decide what you want exactly, to do. Right. Uh, but you do it as long as you want. And when you're ready, you uh, you go ahead and, and initiate the next the next battle. And uh, I agree with you that that because the battles are so intense in Invisible Ink, because they provide you with so many meaningful decisions, uh, 
it sometimes you don't feel like doing that next battle. Exactly. Um, but you know what? I, it's okay at that time to to uh, hit the save and quit button and move on to something else. <laughs> right, right. And it's not it's not an example of that interruption effect I'm talking yeah. about. But it is a pacing issue for me. Uh-huh. Uh, rebuild does not have that. Rebuild is so sleekly it exists on one level. Uh, one of the things I love about Rebuild Three uh, is that when the zombies attack, I don't have to go play a tactical mini game. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's it's a simple decision. I love that the this, by the way, wasn't in the last rebuild. Uh, a battle would happen. You had nothing to do. You just looked at a screen. Mm-hmm. I love here that when a battle happens, she gives you a couple of little decisions that can involve using resources, uh, putting a character at risk. Um, you know, you get a bonus if you have a certain number of characters. They can coordinate their efforts. You can pick from three little options. Yeah. Uh, and I just love the pacing of rebuild. Uh it's part of why I love the continuous time mode. Is mm-hmm. that it's not that everything happens at dawn and then I click and then it's the next dawn. Uh, something is always about to happen in Rebuild. Uh, so you would say it sounds like you prefer the real-time mode of Rebuild 3 to the turn-based mode, not just of Rebuild 3, but of previous versions. I, I think Rebuild 3's real-time mode is, uh, is, a great, is a great example of how a strategy game can play in real-time. Yeah, okay. absolutely. And, and specifically for pacing. Uh-huh. Uh, because something's always about to happen, because a battle is never an interruption, uh, I find myself playing Rebuild 3 for, you know, like three hours at a time when I really have to stop and take a breather from Invisible Ink, and I kind of dread some of the new battles coming up in Massive Chalice. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, you know, I will say, for uh, to its credit, to Rebuild's credit, uh, I do tend to shy away from real-time games, and the real-timiness of its real-time mode was... Uh-huh. was uh, not in any way one of the the the, the main thing that was dra- pushing me away from it, and it it kind of it didn't really bother me much at all. So I I uh, I see your point, and I don't think it was a problem, and it it was probably a benefit. Uh, one thing that bothered me about Rebuild that didn't bother you, I don't need the cutesy little cartoon graphics in my zombie apocalypse. <laughs> uh huh. I don't I want like, those little yeah. cartoon figures and boy, talk about uh, Mad Libs. Like you'd have some guy in Hawaiian shorts <laughs> and a, a, like an African hunter's hat, and he's wearing a, a Punisher T-shirt and flip-flops. Yeah, it's kind of had a South Park feel in exactly, a weird way. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Uh, and even the humor in it. Like, I don't know if you met many of the factions, but there's like these lead hacker chicks. Um, there's uh there's this female empowerment faction uh-huh. uh, that's a direct response to like Gamers Gate and SJWs and all that bullshit that I I don't need that in my games. Uh, <laughs> there's a there's a friendly zombie faction by the way. Oh, that sounds fun. No, it's stupid. I uh, okay. I I, I I the humor I'm okay with. It's so the thing is it's such a the gameplay is so uh, and this was true of the last rebuild. The gameplay is just so like dire and punishing. At least it is when you're playing the harder levels. Uh-huh. Uh, but just the tone and the visuals are just so, like you say, South Park and the humor. Uh, that definitely doesn't work for me in Rebuild. Uh-huh. Uh, but that didn't bother you, I guess. No. Uh, uh, let's talk about the overall, uh, I guess, kind of structure of each game. Uh, okay. And this is another one where I really like Rebuild. Um, Invisible Ink is... And Massive Chalice, they both are kind of like time-limited games, aren't they? Like, you've got a clock set up. Yeah. You know the clock is going to run out. You can only do so much before the clock runs out. So yep. both of those games have this kind of race-against-time element. Uh, how do you feel about that? 
Loved it in uh, both cases. Massive Chalice almost felt three three hundred years felt like too long to it me. It did, didn't uh, it? It did, yeah. Yeah. Like it, it, I would kind of wonder, can I do a two hundred year game? Or yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like there should be a setting for that almost. Uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, I do love uh, a strategy game that isn't just this open ended play forever sandbox. Um, mm-hmm. Where there's definitely a goal you're trying to reach. Um, and by the way. Uh, so in, Invisible Ink um, is so good about you, you play a difficulty level. Like there, There's so much replayability in Invisible Ink that I love that it is a closed session, basically. Like you're playing for those, is it 72 hours? You're, you're playing for mm-hmm. those 72 hours, uh, but then you set up a new game. There's so many different parameters for the new games uh, that I want to keep playing Invisible Ink over and over and over again. So I'm yeah. glad that each game is kind of short and limited in that regard yeah i totally agree i i think uh i think they nailed the pacing and i it's i almost never as much as i would like to i almost never replay a game no matter how much i like it once i've beaten it on any level um and invisible ink i played through and beat on the beginner level i Mm -hmm. played through a second time and beat on the experience level right now i'm just bragging um no those are bragging uh, rights t-zone i mean definitely (laughs) bring those up yeah and uh i i've started the expert level multiple times uh i guess i'm not an expert yet because i i keep getting my ass handed to me and i love it i i love that it's there it's a challenge that i'm going to go back to again and again uh i'm looking forward to it and i know that once i beat the expert level I'm going to go back and try to play the Expert Plus level, and I'm going to try to play the, I forget if it's called the uh, Unlimited uh, mode or something like that. Endless Endless mode. mode. Yeah, Um, yeah, I mean, I just can't wait. Any DLC they release for it, I'll pay anything they ask. I I just need more Invisible Ink. It's my favorite game in many years. It's just so good. Invisible Ink is one of those games that makes me a little sad that life isn't longer. <laughs> I love that. That's so true, though. <laughs> uh, so, Massive Chalice uh, doesn't. So, I think you pointed this out to me. When you finish a game of Massive Chalice, there is nothing. Like, you can play on a harder level, but there's no persistence from game to game. Like in Invisible Ink, you're, you can unlock agents that you then can play in the next level. Yeah. I think you get you get most of those pretty quickly. But yeah, you got you get those with just a few playthroughs. And this is actually a complaint that I have about all three games. I don't think there's a high score list in any of these games. There is in Rebuild Three T Zone. Oh, okay, okay. You bet there is. <laughs> there's a notch that, in its favor. Once you finish a game of of Rebuild, it breaks down. I mean, you want to see the numbers? It breaks down for you why your score is what it is. Okay. What you did to lose points, what you did to gain points. You clearly get a sense for, you know what, if I want a higher score, here's what I need to do next time. Okay. Uh, Rebuild well, 3 yeah, is I, definitely I, like a score challenge, and it knows it. Yeah. I did not complete a game of Rebuild. Uh, I, I played a few, like I, I completed individual missions, and then I got to a point where I kind of groaned because I didn't want to accomplish the task that was in front of me, and then I would start over. So, yeah, I did not get through an entire playthrough. So, re- Rebuild, the overall structure of Rebuild... Uh, is like I say, you as I mentioned before, you you roll up your survivor, you get him through one mission, you bring your best survivors with you, uh, yeah. and then you play a new map. And ideally, the way I play it is I'm working my way up to the impossible difficulty, which which is where I think uh, rebuild, uh, ironically, uh, really comes alive. Uh, is when you're playing a, a zombie survival game at this punishingly brutal difficulty. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it just beats you down. Like I feel that's part of zombie mythology, and she yeah. does that so well. Uh, 
So I love working my way up and then eventually losing rebuild. The structure there uh, of expanding a city, um, you know, the structure and rebuild is you have that early game where you're pushing out your your uh, your your walls. You're trying to be- become a self-sustaining community. Uh, then you're dealing with the other factions. Mm-hmm. Uh, you eventually kind of hit a tipping point where you just have to ride it out to get to one of the end-game missions, mm-hmm. uh, and you move move on to the, the next city. I love that structure. Yeah, all that all that appeals to me in theory. Yeah, for sure. Uh, now, uh, let's talk a bit about, so in Rebuild, you're expanding your territory. In Massive Chalice, your territory is getting chipped hmm. away. Like, your, yeah. your lands are falling into the ocean. Indeed. Uh, and you are definitely trying to hang on for those 300 years. Uh, and then, what happens, T-Zone, at the end of those 300 years? Well, um, do you, would you like spoilers? Oh, no. I, uh, you know what? If you're listening and you haven't finished Massive Chalice, <laughs> I personally, Tom Chick, would recommend that you fast forward the discussion about five minutes because <laughs> I love discovering what happens. Uh, Tony, you described it to me as uh, I had hit a bug in my game, by the way, and I couldn't make any progress. Uh, fortunately, the guys at Double Fine, they gave me a beta for a patch that will address it. So I got to play through the end. Uh, when I mentioned this to you, Tony, you said, well, the final mission itself is kind of like a bug. So I'm assuming you didn't like it. <laughs> I loved it. it uh, well, did you beat it? Did you beat the final oh, mission? Yeah, oh, yeah, 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 definitely. Oh, man. Oh, no, no, well, no, I didn't beat it, but I got to it. Oh, okay, okay. I definitely okay. didn't beat it. Uh, so why don't you explain what happens and why you, uh, I presume, didn't like it? Well, it's not really fair. I, I probably don't like it just because... It totally destroyed me. It did me uh, too. Yep. But and I'm not. I don't know what I would do different. Like I'm thinking about going back to Massive Chalice as we're having this conversation, and I'm just like I'm feeling fatigued just thinking about it because it's it's uh you know as intense and uh, uh, brain burning as people say uh, as Invisible Ink is. And Massive Chalice just is a slog. It is a protracted slog, even though it has a De- defined end game it really felt like a full 300 years playing through it but uh so yeah so i'll, I'll describe the end so you uh you you've raised this you kind of i'd say raised as if they were your children in a way they feel like your children and they're kind of portrayed as your children you raise a nation of warriors of families and uh you get to the final battle and hopefully you've got some fucking badass heroes at this final battle because you are now in the the I don't know what it's called the the chamber that houses the massive chalice, which is the MacGuffin that talks to you throughout the game and is is the source of all your powers and you know this mythological relic, not a relic in the game sense, but a small R. And uh, and you're just attacked, you're invaded, your chalice chamber is invaded by dozens. I think is accurate. Maybe hundreds of of monsters, and they just keep coming. They you think that you know there's like twenty or thirty at, at the beginning of the of the combat, and uh, my initial reaction was, oh Jesus, this is going to be impossible. I need to find a defensible corner because uh, it puts your guys in the middle of everything, yep. which is the worst tactical position to be in. And you, so what I wanted to do was immediately, you know, find the weakest edge the weakest part of the perimeter of monsters surrounding me and tunnel through it and and get my back against a wall and just do my best to 
plink away at these monsters. And I sort of was making some progress. And then just as I was about to feel like, okay, the tide might be maybe about to turn, not definitely, but maybe I might have a chance. All of a sudden the game just like poops 40 new monsters and they just like <laughs> beam in Star Trek style. This has never happened in this game before. Uh, and now I'm just surrounded by as many monsters as I was at the beginning, plus more probably. And uh, by the way, I should mention that the chalice in this chamber, uh, the monsters are attacking you and they're also, some of them are going after the chalice. And thank God they're doing that because yep. if they just went made a beeline for me, I would have lasted two turns probably. They would have totally spanked me and I would have been dead immediately. But, but so instead, if, if they kill the chalice, it's game over. That's correct. Yeah. Uh, but the chalice has 400 hit points, and they're, they it's they don't do a whole lot of damage to it per hit. I think that's 500. That's oh, okay. Yeah. Um, so they're plinking away at the chalice, and it's sort of distracting them from from destroying you. In fact, I did lose the game when they destroyed the chalice. But uh, but my team was barely hanging on at that point. Most of my guys had died, and I could be wrong. Tell me if I'm if this happened to you. Mm-hmm. I think I got far enough in the battle where something weird happened. Ah, your, your T zone, I think, is what the why I loved it. I, I'm curious. <laughs> okay. I, I think you might have missed something crucial. But go ahead. What do you think? No, I think I, I think I know what would have continued to happen, okay. uh, and I think I know what what did happen. I could be, I'm, I'm not 100 percent sure. So somebody said some dialogue or something. I forget if it was the chalice or what. The chalice talks to you, by the way. I hate and, that, by the way. I hated the two oh, chalice voices. Oh, I loved it. Let oh me let God. me actually commend the developers of Massive Chalice on this. I loved the voice acting, and I loved the writing. It's so rare that you have a game that has writing that is anything other than bottom-of-the-barrel, total trash. Uh, this game's dialogue was really smartly written and performed brilliantly by two very fun voice actors. Anyway, Tom, you hated it. Though. Oh, well, I agree. The voice actors were great. They were obviously having a lot of fun with it. But I did not. Uh, first of all, the the fact that it's a giant cup just seems silly. It's like they they thought up the name of a game and then had to make a great game and then they. I'm okay with it. They were like, okay, well, let's keep this <laughs> this working title, whatever. But uh, it reminded me of. Uh, Elizabeth Banks and John Michael Higgins in Pitch Perfect. Have you seen that? Uh, you know what? I never saw Pitch Perfect. It might be a too obscure reference to roll out, but it's, it's, it's a movie a cappella singers, yeah. and every now and then, there are two commentators played by these two actors who are great and funny, uh, who are just commenting on the action. You know, I heard Massive Chalice was originally a video game adaptation of Pitch Perfect, <laughs> but they lost the license and they had to change it. <laughs> that explains a lot. Yes, very yeah. good. Um, uh, so... But yeah, so they, that didn't work for me. But so at the end, they're attacking the chalice. They're attacking you. Forty new monsters pooped in. Yeah. Uh, then all of a sudden, yes. somebody says something like, "Oh, our, our fallen warriors are returning." And I think uh, characters that died that you built up and died of natural causes or on the battlefield over the course of the game. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like they were starting to beam in and help you out. So here is what you will do next time, and okay. and this is the thing with me. Uh, there's nothing to prepare you for this final mission. Uh, like you say, it does things that you have not encountered in the game. That whole beaming in new monsters, but more importantly, you know, previously in the game, in the, the battles, and I loved this compared to XCOM. Like in XCOM, as you're moving around, every now and then it teleports in new dudes, uh, and there's this whole controversy where people hate the spawning map stuff in XCOM. Uh, the maps in Massive Chalice are pre-stocked. You know, the dudes are there, they're where they're going to be, uh, a lot of the gameplay in Massive Chalice is using stealth to sort of scout out the map. Um, in this final mission, everything is coming at you. You know, you're not going out and uncovering the map and using your stealth. Uh, that whole system is gone. You're playing like a, a tower defense thing where, where you're being rushed. It's like horde mode or something. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But when one of your guys dies, he or she is replaced by the previous member, the closest member who died in that house. Uh, and you work your way backwards through every single member of that house until you reach huh. the end of the bloodline. So what you want in your final mission, and what I didn't do, because some of my houses fell into the sea, some of them because it was my first game, I didn't know what I was doing. I just sort of let them go by the wayside. I literally had an empty keep at the end. Um, a lot of times I did for research, you can uh, hire a bunch of people from the community, I guess, and you get a, a an influx of, of medium-level characters, high-level at the end of the game. So a lot of the, the guys that I used on the last mission were people I had just hired off of the streets, basically, because they were <laughs> the highest level. Um, mm. And when they died, they're dead. But anybody who has a house, when they die, they're replaced by their closest ancestor. So what you want to do for Massive Chalice, and you don't know this going in, by the way, uh, but the idea is that when people die, they go into the chalice. And there are a lot of the little uh, story quests that pop up in the game where you can make decisions. And a lot of times one of the decisions is just shrugging and throwing something in the chalice to see what happens. Uh, so the idea is that all of the ancestors were thrown into the chalice when they died, and that during this battle, when somebody falls, they're replaced by their closest ancestor from the chalice. So if you have a strong bloodline, you know, if you have a family that you've built up through those 300 years, you're basically going to have not unlimited reinforcements, but the reinforcements you need hmm. to stand up against this onslaught of monsters. Um, Okay, so really the chalice is, you do want to protect the chalice at all costs, because it's the only thing that will not get replenished. Exactly. You can let your characters die, they will all go out and blaze huh. glory, uh, you will, I think they come up with, you know, the skill trees are intact, but I think they have whatever equipment you kitted them out with, which is another thing I love in the game, by the way, the choices you get to make for what equipment, what armor, what weapons to use. Uh, yeah, wait, I'm sorry, so you said they, they have whatever they had when they died or yep, something? Yeah, I think so, yep. Okay, I wonder if a re if if they pass the relic backwards. That's a good question too. Uh, I do not know. It's a very good question. Um, well, well, that you know what? That's I think that's uh, a really cool choice. And <laughs> because otherwise, it, it, it is impossible. It's insane the number yeah, of monsters. It annoys me to, to, to realize that because it may it makes me want to play Massive Chalice again, which I thought I was gonna get to avoid doing. But uh, I it, that that's uh, a, another really cool. Uh, a really cool choice that they made. They made a lot of really cool choices in Massive Chalice. I think, uh, in some ways, even though Invisible Ink, I liked a whole lot more. I think Massive Chalice may be the most inventive uh, of these three games. It had it had a lot of potential, and I think it's not all realized. Uh, and I think you know some of the interesting directions they chose were not uh, were not fully uh, seen out to their to their right. full potential. But but uh, it. It, it really introduces a lot of interesting ideas that I hope other games will be inspired by, and I suspect they won't because I feel like, and I have nothing to base this on, I just feel like the game was not a huge hit. I, I think Massive Chalice is going to be one of those things uh, regarded as a cult hit, where a lot of some people liked it a lot, most people just kind of uh, it bounced off of them for whatever reason. Yeah, uh, and that so we'll. we'll we can fast forward to, I mean, I think we've, we've previously said which ones we like best, but that for me is why of these three games, all three of which I really like, uh, Massive Chalice is my favorite. Um, mm. I would prefer, you, you know, I, I prefer a game that does something new rather than a game that does something well, all things, all things considered. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, in a way, that's a false dichotomy. Every game does something well or it wouldn't run. Every game does something new or it would just be a re-release. Uh, but if all things are equal, just as someone who plays a lot of games, it really uh-huh. it really means a lot to me when a game shows me something new that I haven't seen before. And uh, for me, it's more... Uh, it I I totally value new uh, ideas, and I uh, I think that's interesting that you, that that's your uh, highest priority. For me, it's for me it's about is this a game that I'm going to want to play again, uh, and I'm eager to play again. Right. And uh, and really, when I did play, even if I'm not going to play it again, like adventure games, I might never play again. Uh, but when I was playing it. Was I enjoying it every moment, or hopefully most moments? And if I wasn't enjoying it, was it because of a, of a failing of the game, or was it because I was uh, just uh, burning out on it? Which is really the only thing that caused me to have feel anything other than uh, adoration for Invisible Ink. It was because I loved it so much that I kind of beat it into the ground a little bit, and I needed to force myself to step away, which is like, and I love when that happens because it happens so rarely for me. Uh, I just, I, I, I like it a lot. And so for that reason, that would put Invisible Ink at the top yes, of your list. That's why Invisible Ink is my number one, because I agree with you. It absolutely, um, while it is one of only two games that really do what it does, um, it, it is it is not entirely new uh, in the way that Massive Chalice in many ways, uh, is. What, um, what's but the it, other but it, game that does what it does? You said one of two games that does what it does. One of two games that does, yeah. Oh, what's the other one your question is? Yeah. Oh, Shadow Watch. Oh, oh I see what you're saying. Right, right. Right, yeah. but it, but of course Shadow Watch does it differently. But uh, yeah, but Invisible Ink, I will, I I just really love it, and I'm definitely going to go back to it. Massive Chalice, I agree, it's 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 more novel and more new, and, and in many ways, some ways, more interesting. But the actual experience of playing it for me was often tedious uh, and a bit of a slog. And, and and part of the reason for that is so many of the cool new things that Massive Chalice brings to the table are things that might as well not even be there during 80% of what you're actually doing, which is the tactical combat. Right. So did you not like, like in the tactical combat, one of the things that really kept me going to Massive Chalice was uh, developing a new weapon or skill or class uh, and seeing it in action. Like, was that not like, for instance, uh, Tony, have you ever time fisted something? <laughs> uh, well, that's a personal question, Tom, but uh, no, the answer is no, because I very quickly, for me, uh-huh. in Massive Chalice, the combats were something that I wanted to get over with. Right. And, and I feel like, I feel like that's, I don't know, I feel a little embarrassed to even say that, but I just wanted to. Because I, I feel like it might be my fault or something. But I very quickly decided the most painless way for me to get through combat is to have a team full of archers, whatever they may be called. Uh, the hunters, there's, right. So you were just sniping things. With there's some other hunters, hunters, and there's another class that I... Enforcers. Like a hybrid class. It's the hunter uh, cross There's another one. Trick oh. shots. Trick shots. Oh, trick shots, right. Yeah, the, yeah, I had trick shots early on, and they died out. Right. I don't know what the difference is between hunters and trick shots. Uh, well, hunter is the basic class. The three basic classes are caberjack, hunter, and alchemist. I think it's um, caberjack. No, come on. Yeah, because they have cabers. Caber. It's, it's, oh, you're right. Caberjack. Oh, I was thinking of it's like guys in cabs. Caberjack. Yeah, caberjack. Okay. <laughs> They're all cab drivers. Um, so the, the, uh, the, the trick shot is a more fancy ranged one where an enforcer is a, a hunter, a ranged character who's like more hardy um, uh-huh. and can take more damage. 
Oh, well, uh, that's great. So I had a bunch of trick shots. I had some hunters, and it was just I, I once you they're up at a high level, they have a really f- good range. Right. And, uh, you know, this is a thing that I don't like about tactical combat in a lot of games. In many of these squad-based games, XCOM is one where you're where you do tactical missions. The strategic best thing for you to be doing when you start the mission and the whole map is in fog of war except what's immediately around you you should really be inching forward uh, a, a square at a time each turn now I know with XCOM's expansion they they added uh, incentives for you to cover the map quickly and I think right. that's smart uh, but really the smart choice in Massive Chalice uh, <laughs> if you want to minimize risk to your team for absolutely no penalty at all except for your own time and that's quite a significant penalty uh would be to inch one square every turn until you uh unearth all the enemies which you because you want to unearth as few of them as possible reveal actually right exactly yeah you want to reveal as few as possible at a time um but of course that's a terribly boring and tedious way to play and i think any game where the strategic best thing to do is also terribly boring and tedious. I think that's a design flaw. I think that should not happen. So I think the tactical combat is inherently flawed in Massive Chalice and any other game that does it that way. Uh, Because I would have my guys, you know, sprinting across the map, trying to get it over with as fast as possible. Because the interesting part of this game to me is seeing how the generations change, seeing families die and and grow, and and, uh, seeing relics be generated and be passed down and seeing what the babies are like and, and seeing all the traits get passed down and oh no this guy has has heart disease is he going to die young etc cetera, etc cetera. like that's all so cool and then 80% of the game you're in this bog standard as the Brits say tactical combat which you've seen a thousand times and this is not innovative and not interesting and not new and it's a step back from where XCOM is now uh, which is bad enough and uh it just was not enjoyable to me. So it sounds like, because I would disagree about it being not interesting or innovative, because it sounds like, um, and this might be a failing on Double Fine's part, you sort of found the worst case, like optimal way to win the battles without experiencing the interplay amongst the classes and the monsters. Um, because I got stuck a lot of times with just Cape Cabert Cabert. Caber jacks. Caber jacks. Uh, Caber jacks. Uh, I wasn't able to be as careful as you were. Uh, I was having to like, you know, I, I usually had a couple of like ranged guys, but I was so heavy on those melee guys uh, that I was having to like fight somebody, and then something would go wrong. I'd get switched places with one of those. Uh, I think the twitchers are the ones that teleport you to where they were, and they take uh-huh. your spot. Yeah, um, that's that's brutal. And then I like- would uncover someone new that I hadn't seen. Uh, mm-hmm. So I get these cascading failures, um, and then furthermore, when you're fighting ruptures, those things that explode and create a little acid pool on the ground that damages anything, yeah. uh, you know, hunters have got to be an ideal way to deal with those guys. Oh, yeah. Uh, right. So I, I, I think um, what, what for me was innovative, new, and interesting was how each monster had a very discreet tactical role, um, mm-hmm. and each class also had a discreet tactical role. It sounds like Double Fine lets you undermine a lot of that if you are just picking things off with ranged units. Well, I mean, I, yeah, I think so much of the game is in breeding families based on what you want your warriors to be able to do. Certainly, 
part of that has to be what class am I most comfortable with? What comp, you know, what style of combat do I find most uh, useful? And so I think they're encouraging you to uh, figure out which, you know, what, what, what one class uh, you find most versatile and, and, it's it's not like I've played the game a thousand times and I've mathematically determined that that hunters are the one class that you really need to go with. But it just it's what I'm comfortable playing with, and I will never voluntarily uh, breed a family of caber jacks or uh, the little bomb throwing guys okay, when I have the option to uh, to to breed hunters. And I just want to add one thing: you uh-huh. you mentioned that you you couldn't play the game as as carefully as as I was playing it because you had a lot of caber jacks. Uh, I wasn't. I wasn't always playing the game carefully. I certainly did not practice what I just preached of inching forward a square across the map. I would send guys running long distances to try to unveil monsters because I wanted the combat to be over. And then some. And usually that would go fine. Usually I'd estimate, okay, if I run these five squares, I'll probably only unveil one or two guys. I can pick them off this turn or next turn, and it'll be fine. And it usually was. And that's not an interesting decision. Uh, and but sometimes. I would run one or two squares too far, not by a misclick, but just I would misestimate how right. far I should go. And uh, I would unveil a bunch of guys, or I'd unveil the wrong kinds of guys, and my team would be surrounded on multiple fronts or something, and I'd get my ass kicked. And then I would think, well, geez, yeah, I mean, uh, right, I'm not. If I played this the tactically optimal way, this wouldn't have happened. Uh, but because you know, because I got impatient and bored, uh, I'm now I'm in this situation, and I hate. I, I don't think that's a good game design that encourages you uh, to play non-strategically because to play strategically is dull. <laughs> like I think that's that's a red flag uh, in game design. It sounds to me like what happened and what what you're missing out on, Tony, is with with. With so many with ranged units, the trade-offs are going to be more frail. They're not going to have as many hit points. Uh-huh. Furthermore, they're not going to be able, able to equip some of the advanced equipment. Like, like do you even know about shell defenses, for instance? Like, you know, as you kill a certain number of monsters, you unlock research options mm-hmm. to then give yourself oh, yeah. one of those monsters' powers. Sure, and you can research armor based on the monsters. Right. So, et cetera, so et cetera, yeah. And, and so, so caberjacks can wear a shell Caber defense. Caberjacks can wear a shell defense where. They take damage, but then every damage thereafter they take that turn is just one point, um, like those yeah. bulwarks. And and you know when you have a caberjack who's wearing cape that, who cape yeah one of those guys whatever <laughs> who's wearing that, uh, you know he can withstand a huge slog if he finds himself in a difficult position. And I'm guessing, again, part of what you have to do at the end of the 300 years is have a variety of kinds of defenders at the massive chalice. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you need a house of caberjacks. Nailed it. Uh, thank you. Uh, and alchemists and hunters, and actually not even those three things, but your choice of subclasses. Most of which I feel like I, I've only fiddled with a couple of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I hear what you're saying, but I think, I, I think you might be gimping yourself by playing optimally. Uh, as far as you can get through the battles, but I don't think you're setting yourself up where you're going to be able to to live during the final battle. I see. Yeah. So you think I should be cultivating a wide range of different warrior types so that I can so that I can uh, beat the final battle? Because that's one of the things too that I think is new, interesting, and innovative about this is when you go into a tactical battle, it tells you here are th- there are only six monsters, by the way, in um, yeah. in Massive Chalice, and each one of them has a very broadly different function in the game and anytime yep. you're going to start a battle 
it tells you which three you're going to face. So you can you can choose which six, five, six characters, five characters you're going to bring in based on which three things, you're, three monsters you're going to face. Uh, one of the things that about knocked me out of my chair before the final battle, it lists all six monsters. And I was like, wait, mm-hmm. this is insane. I can't fight all of them. That's not fair. Uh, so again, I think that's the point is you get to this final battle and this might be, you know, I kind of admire this. I think you have to really massively lose Massive Chalice before you win it. Like, I think it's a game you have to play it once to fail completely, mm-hmm. figure out what you have to do in the final mission, and then every playthrough thereafter is, is trying to create these strong bloodlines that will survive during that final mission. And I agree mm-hmm. with you, it's a way too long game to have that kind of pattern. You know, something like Invisible Ink, you, you finish a game and you, know, you play those 72 hours, it, it feels like just the right length of time. Yeah. Those 300 years of Massive Chalice, yeah, they can feel like 300 years. Um, but I think that's the overall structure is setting yourself up to survive that final battle. Uh, yeah, I think I think that may be true. And uh, and I have to admit, talking about it is making me think about playing it again with mixed feelings. Uh, but I probably will someday go back to Massive Chalice. Well, but first, there's Invisible Ink to be played. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So to recap, T-Zone, your your favorites go Invisible Ink, uh, Massive Chalice, Rebuild Three. Correct. For me, uh, Massive Chalice, Invisible Ink, Rebuild Three. What's um, our common denominator? Don't buy Rebuild 3. No! How dare you? How dare you? That is not what I'm saying at all. Uh, One yeah. star. No. Oh, no. No way. Uh, yeah, no, I really, I, I would say Rebuild 3 is... Uh, would I say this? Yeah. Uh, I think it is one of... Yeah, one of the finest video game expressions of zombie mythology. Wow. Compared to... Uh, there's a game called State of Decay. Uh, Rebuild 3. Is there anything else I'd pick? Nope. I think those two games are the finest expressions of zombie mythology uh, that, that you can find in video gaming. Okay. So very high praise from me, as as as, as a huge zombie connoisseur, by the way. Yeah. What about that one? Uh, I forget what it's called now. That's that Xbox 360 series, Dead Rising. Oh no, Dead Rising sort of uh, jumped the shark at a certain point. <laughs> Dead Rising is uh, I don't use this word lightly or often, but Dead Rising is a lot of fun, but it's very slight. You just used the F word. I really did, didn't I? I know, yeah. Uh, All right, well, Tony, uh, thank you so much for uh, hanging out and discussing these with me. Yeah, thanks. It was fun. Uh, And just to remind folks, uh, subscribe to Pony Carnival on uh, YouTube. (laughs) uh, And we will see everyone here next week. I've got you under my skin I've got you deep in the heart of me So deep in my heart that